Walking in the light, 1 John and the path to living deeply in Christ. We've been at this 16 weeks. This is part 17. Get a Bible. Let's study together for a little while. The title of this teaching is God's Love Perfected in Our Own Hearts. And I think you'll see from the text we're studying where I get those words for the title. We're going to be studying 1 John 4, 7 through 12. 1 John 4, 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. It was made manifest at a particular point point in history. That's what he's saying. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So when he says God is love, he doesn't just mean he's like a big Hallmark card. He means God has revealed his saving love specifically when Jesus came into the world. 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son, there it is again, to be the propitiation for our sins, satisfying the wrath of God against my sin. That's what propitiation means. 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. That's going to be an important statement in a little while. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, there's a sense in which all of this orbs around a pretty key statement that John made back in chapter 3, 1 John 3, 23, where John said this, and it's kind of a summary statement of the last two studies. And this is his commandment, and I'd like you to notice that it's commandment singular. Even though John is going to now go and talk about two things, they're so closely knit together and inseparable from each other that it's really one commandment, even though it's going to go in two directions. And this is his commandment that we, A, believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, that's the first thing, and B, love one another just as he has commanded us. So that's a summary statement, really boiled down what the Christian life actually is all about. Down to its essence, believe in the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. What, what we did last Sunday is we looked at chapter 4, 1 to 6, which unpacks commandment number 1, what it means to believe in the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ, that he came into this world. The incarnation. It's not just believing there was a man, a prophet, a teacher, that Jesus existed. He's very clear in those first six verses. Believing in Jesus means believing that he was with God, came into this world on his saving mission for mankind. Now, verses 7 to 12 of chapter 4, John is going to be unfolding what it means to love one another. Because he says it, he says it twice. Verse 7, beloved, let us love one another. And then verse 11, he repeats it, we also ought to love one another. Now what I want to do in the next little while is I want to 
I want to take three reasons out of this text, three reasons why we should love one another and why this is so important to John. So point number one. First, we should love one another because love comes from God and God is love. I get that in verses seven and eight. Beloved, let us love one another for, here's the first reference, love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because, here it is again, God is, God is love. So this God, the God who saved me, the God to whom I've come, the God who earlier, John says, his seed His DNA, something living happened when his spirit came into me. uh, The whole whole idea behind the Christian life is I, I become more like God. Well, what is God like? It's a pretty crucial question. If I'm supposed to be like him, if I'm to be shaped more and more into his likeness, what is that likeness? What does the likeness of God look like? And, and that's what John is dealing with in these verses. That's why, that's why he emphasizes that seventh verse, John 4, 7, where he says we've been born of God. So John's, he's trying to remind us of this very important point, that in becoming a Christian, I'm, I'm, I'm actually claiming something of God's genetics, his life, his nature. It's actually planted in my soul. And so now he's saying, and Don, let me tell you, that life of God that was born in your heart by the Holy Spirit, let me tell you what that, what that life looks like. God's love. I mean, I can't be changed by God without first being reached by his love. That's amazing grace, all right. And I can't become more like God without becoming more loving. Because because that's the kind of change God makes. Forgiving my sins is the change God's love makes for my record. Loving my enemies is the change God makes in my lifestyle. Both those things come together. It can be it can be n- no other way because John says, well because God is love. And if God is love, and if God is in my life, then God's love is in my life. It it's the same way that that uh you know, you, a breathalyzer test. It checks for the presence of alcohol in the blood. In the same way, John says, love one another because that's the test of the presence of God in your heart. That's how you can tell if God is in his system, like alcohol in the system of of the driver with the breathalyzer. That's how you tell if God is in my system. It'll show up. How do you tell if someone really has God in his heart or in her heart? Anybody can say they're saved. Anybody can say they're Christians. Anybody can say they love Jesus? How do you you know if God's really there? Well, John says, look for 
Test for love samples. If God is present, so is his love. I mean, if it's in there, it's, it's in there. It'll come out. It's just that simple. It's just that obvious. God's life is in the believer, the one who believes in Jesus. God's life is in there. What is that love life? Well, it's, it's a love that came and saved me and loved me when I was unworthy. There, there, that's what that love looks like. Point number two. While the source of love is God's nature, the demonstration of God's love is Jesus Christ. I get that in verses 9, 10, and 11. In this, the love of God, here are the words, was made manifest among us. So it was here on earth at a particular time. That God sent his only son into the world. There's the incarnation. So that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought, there's that moral imperative, we ought to love one another. So, so notice that phrase in verse 9, the love of God, he says, was made manifest among us. Now, this isn't, this isn't when God suddenly became loving. That's not what John means at all. This, this isn't when God's love came into existence. God has always been love. His character, his nature doesn't change. He's not a God of wrath in the Old Testament and a God of love in the New Testament, in spite of the ridiculous things you sometimes hear. God's love made manifest among us when Jesus came. That's not when God became loving. That's when his love was made visible. That was the highest demonstration of what kind of love is God's love like? Well, it comes in and lays down life for guilty people. I need to know that because I'm, I'm like you. I'm pretty notorious for making love... Uh, Confusing it with sentiment. We talk about people falling in love. We see little slogans. We can pick certain people we feel pretty good about and pride ourselves in our love for them. And into all of that fuzziness, John talks about, now, here's what true love looks like. Here's love's manifestation. That's the word he uses. Here's what God's love looks like. And he starts talking about the blood of Jesus. That's what that big word propitiation in verse 10 is all about. So, so notice John's point here. Not only is the cross the place where we experience God's forgiving love, it's where we see the meaning of God's love in my heart towards others. It's for the guilty. It's for those who wrong me. It's for enemies. That's the way it came to me. That's the way it flows out of me. Why? Well, because God is love. If he's in there, it's his love that flows out. This isn't easy for very many of us. Offering free, sacrificial, forgiving, warm love to people who have wronged us it raises questions in our minds, doesn't it? If we're honest. Questions like this. 
If we forgive too freely, if we forgive too quickly, well then people aren't going to take their actions very seriously and they're not going to take holiness very seriously. If grace and mercy come easily, where's the incentive not to sin again? What, what makes people grow up? People won't care about sin if forgiveness is cheap and free and easy. How will they ever learn their lesson so they don't hurt other people the way they hurt me? Sounds pretty logical, doesn't it? That's an issue. That's an issue that we need to think through. That's an issue that every church needs to seriously think through. I, I wrestle with those kinds of questions constantly in my own ministry, and I think every thoughtful pastor should. I mean... How, how does truth get delivered in churches? You can preach and teach in such a way that one group of people will say, well, man, you're so harsh, you're legalistic, all you talk about is holiness and pleasing God, and, and God hates sin and, and shape up. Then people will feel devastated, pastor. They'll feel like failures. They'll feel like they can never measure up. They'll feel like they never do anything right in God's eyes. You'd just be beating them into the ground. Or, here's the other side of the coin, you can preach wonderful, free, unconditional grace in such a marvelous way that other people are going to say, hey, hey, you're taking away any consequences to sin whatsoever. People will just grow indifferent to their actions. They won't even care about holiness and doing what's right. They'll just think, well, God loves me the way I am, and I can just stay the way I am all the way to heaven. Who cares? Those aren't light, breezy issues. We need to talk about them. It seems to me that in this whole issue, what really needs to be kind of re-emphasized is what effect does loving grace produce on the heart receiving it? What did receiving God's grace do to you? I mean, did it make you love God more or did it make you love your sin more? That's a pretty searching question. Did it make you happy when you sinned or did it make you sad when you sinned? Did it draw you closer to the heart of God or did it draw you closer to the acceptance of the surrounding culture? This is a really important issue. I mean, some issues are root issues. The answer you give to them, it shapes the way you think about everything else. What was it that changed your heart toward God? What was it? Why do you love him when all sorts of other people don't? Did you do this yourself? Did you just grab yourself by the bootstraps? Did you just... Make yourself love God all on your own? Or, or did God's grace do something to your heart, either instantly or gradually? Did something happen that led you and caused you to love him? Fortunately, John's going to give us an answer to those questions. Look at 1 John 4, look at verse 10 and then verse 19. And this is love. Not, starts with the negative, not that we have loved God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We love him because he first loved us. When did he send Jesus into this world? When we all cleaned ourselves up and made ourselves morally pretty? No. No. Paul says, well, while we were enemies, that's when he died for us. While we didn't care. While we didn't love. While we didn't deserve. While we were guilty. His love was manifested in Jesus Christ. So there it is. God's love, the fountain, the transforming source of my changed heart and my changed affections. He turned me from being an enemy into a friend. Well, how, Pastor Don? How, how, how did he change me? Well, he changed me by loving me in spite of my wretched, pathetic guilt. He changed me by laying down his life for me. He changed me by sacrificing himself for me. Paul, I don't want to wear you out, but Paul says the very same thing in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Look these verses up because they're really precious. And you were, here's what, here's what you were, dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's what's behind a lot of the visible things you see in the surrounding culture. Never forget, never forget there's a spiritual power behind it all. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Just like the rest of mankind. That's pretty bleak. But, but, God being rich in mercy. Because of the great love. That's what First John's talking about. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even, well, when did he do this? Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We could talk for hours on that. Apparently, apparently, I need this reminder. I need to keep the sequence of this wonderful salvation. I need to keep that alive in my own thoughts. It's not enough just to know Jesus loved me and died for me. That in itself is not the furnace where a godlike love gets forged. The real issue is not what he did, but when he did it. It's, it's the timing of the manifestation of this love. When did Jesus come and die for me? Well, Paul says, I was by nature a, ch a child of wrath. Chapter 2, verse 3. When did Jesus give up all of his rights? Was it when I was seeking the Spirit of God? No, says Paul. It's when I was 2-2. It's when I was following the prince of the power of the air. Now, here's the issue. Why, why is it so important to remember this timing element? Because if I forget this, I'm liable to start offering my love and my forgiveness only when I think people have somehow paid for their sins against me. And that's not God's love. 
That, in fact, is the opposite of the way God revealed his love to me while I was a sinner. And he made manifest his love in Jesus Christ for me. So, so that's why John talks so much about what love looks like. And he doesn't just say God is love. That's the part people quote all the time. Because you can pull in all the religions and all the prophets and just about everything under there. Just be nice and that's what, that's what God is all about. But no, when he talks about the love of God twice, he specifically says, it's when Jesus came that we saw that love. It's when Jesus came that we saw it manifested. What gradually turned my heart to love God and his holiness was, and still is, pondering God's amazing grace. God gave his life for me, when I was his enemy. And what will change the heart of my enemy is my offer of free grace while he is still my enemy, while he doesn't deserve it. There, that's how God does it, John says. If he's in you at all, that's what that love will look like. I believe it's so important. Revenge hardens and sours both those who give it and those who receive it. You weren't changed by God making you sweat it out for a hundred years in hell. You were transformed by God's loving reach and embrace in Jesus Christ. That's God's system for changing people. Point number three, we're almost done. John says, God's love is completed. Interesting phrase. Was it incomplete? God's love is completed in God's children. I get that very clearly in that 12th verse. No one has ever seen God. That's where he starts. If we love one another, God abides in us. Look at, And his love is perfected. Some translations say completed. Same idea. His love is perfected in us. So, so I think you can see, here's John's progression of thinking here. God's love has its source in his nature. God is love. God's love is manifested savingly in his son, Jesus Christ. And finally, God's love is completed through his loving, forgiving children in this world. So I'm meant to see that none of the links of that chain can be ignored without the whole structure falling to the ground. That's why it's interesting, isn't it? In that 12th verse, he starts off by talking about the invisibility of God. No one has ever seen God. Now, why should John bother to remind us that we worship a God we can't see? I mean, that could be a depressing thought. And you think we all know that anyway. It's so obvious. What's John getting at? Here's the point. If God is invisible, how's anybody going to know when he's present? I mean, the church, we, we do it all the time. We declare his presence, you know, where two or three are gathered in my name. We, we declare his presence all the time. It, we call people to place faith in a God they've never seen. How, how can those whom we address in the world 
take us seriously when they look around this, I mean, I'm here in this empty room now, but even when it's full of people. So someone, an atheist, whatever, they come in and we say, God's here. And they look around and they say, well, I, I, I don't see anybody. I just see you people. How can they know when God is there? How can they know when God is at work? What gives them the kind of evidence they can lean on and put their trust in? Well, John says there's just one way. Only one way. No one has ever seen God. Jesus isn't physically here anymore. No one can see him. So, so now that Jesus has come and gone, there's only one way for God to be real to onlookers. One way that he becomes visible and an object of their faith. And John is pleading for Christians, pleading for the church not to let their own egos and their pride and their unforgiveness and their bitterness and their revenge and their quarreling, don't you, don't you fail to show God to people with those attitudes. I love, uh, there's a masterful little book by Thomas Smale. The title of the book is Like Father, Like Son. The Trinity imaged in our humanity. It's kind of a dense read, but listen to this paragraph. He says, the new humanity in Christ that the church offers in its missions is plausible outside the church only if it can be seen to be effective inside the church. A church riven by bad relationships and yet preaching reconciliation is like a total abstinence society, all of whose members are permanently drunk. It's a good paragraph. God becomes visible when I love my enemies the way God loved me, mercifully, sacrificially, preemptively. I mean, I mean, what was God's ultimate intention in extending his love to you, to me? Why did he do it? Was it just to save me or was it to reach others through me? Well, of course, we'd all say, well, it was to reach others through us. We're not stupid. We know that's the right answer. But if I say it, boy, I have to live it. And that means I have to offer love just as sacrificially, just as passionately to my enemies while they are still my enemies as God offers his love and grace to his enemies while they were still his enemies. Well, sin can't just be ignored, Pastor Don. I imagine someone saying that. And you're right. Sin can never just be ignored. But, but we need to think that issue through a little more deeply than that. Where was my sin paid for? Did I, did I kind of atone for it, pay for it myself, or did Jesus pay for it? Well, we know the right answer. Jesus, he paid it all. We sing it all the time. Okay, fair enough. But here's the thing. I mean, Jesus didn't just die on the cross and pay for my sin. He paid for my enemy's sin. That person that wronged me, Jesus paid for his sin too, not just mine. 
Jesus totally paid the debt of my enemy's sin to the extent that there's nothing else I need to extract from my enemy anymore. I can love him freely, forgivingly, warmly. I understand. I understand there are consequences to people's actions in this world. I get it. I understand that even in the church, certain sins will require action, sometimes on the part of the church. This church has done that in the past. Too much for some people, not enough for other people. But that's not the subject here. I'm talking about my heart, my inner heart, how I react toward those whom I dislike because they've done something wrong to me, perhaps very deeply. Let me close with this. You know the famous account. Peter comes to Jesus and he says, uh, many times, so forgiving your enemy, I get it. Okay, I get it. You talk about it. Jesus, you talk about it all the time. Here's the thing. How many times do I have to do this? How can I forgive my brother who sins against me seven times 70? And here's, what, here's what's going on in Peter's mind, I think. If this guy comes back and does this to me, the same thing, four, 490 times, what kind of repentance is that? That's what Peter's thinking. There's no change of heart. This guy's just taking advantage of me. If I, if I give him three times, seven times, ten times, 490? Are you kidding me? This guy doesn't care about me. It seems like a pretty astute theological question, the kind I would like to have asked, probably. And it's humbling to think of what Jesus probably meant with his response. Peter, why, why, don't you, why don't you let me worry about your enemy's repentance and you just worry about your enemy's forgiveness? That's huge. It's huge. That's it exactly. Jesus is saying, here's what Peter doesn't get. Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, I don't care if you think your enemy's taking advantage of you. You keep your heart free. Stay free. Vengeance is God's. Only God is righteous enough to be entrusted with dispensing justice. Forgiveness, Peter, that's your job. And everyone said, let's pray. What a big text. So much in it. Let your love, the kind that came manifested in Jesus, laying down his life for his enemies. Let that love of God be manifest in all of our hearts in Cedarview Community Church. That people in the world look and see, oh, God is there. Because this is the human response. This is God's spirit at work. So bless this wonderfully demanding truth to all of our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for studying with us. God bless you. Love one another, church.